this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. I have all these experiences in my memory, having grown up in the church, the experiences of extreme presence of God, the moments spent at camps around altars or in a week-long conference, worshiping and praising God every day, all day. It's when God seems to heal your heart, inspire your soul, and teach your mind all at once, and you feel so close to Him, so changed, that you think everyone must be able to see the change in you so clearly, you know? Like, like everyone can just tell how different you are. Your perspective, your mindset, your place in the world all seem to shift so powerfully. And I have this, this picture in my mind of the mountaintop experiences in the Bible. I, I imagine that they are the physical representation of my camp or conference experience. I, I picture the work that it takes to get to the top, the exhaustion, the sleepless nights and long days, always looking ahead, uh, how much longer, how much farther, building your expectation, rehearsing the questions over and over in your mind. And when you finally get there, and get to experience the presence of God, just how powerful that must be. There are some quintessential mountaintop moments in the Bible that we're going to teach throughout this church camp sermon series, and I really hope that you get to experience God in a brand new way. And I hope that you're already anticipating what God is going to do. That's, that's what the mountaintops theme is all about hearing from God in a brand new way and the work it takes to get there. Are you ready? Home groups are a super important part of our church life here at Freedom Valley. Who is a part of a home group currently? Or had been in the spring. A lot of them took off. Awesome. A pretty good chunk of this section. Can I award points, Jason? Because I should to this team. So at home group this week, now just let me explain. Home groups are um, small groups that meet in homes. I feel like that part's pretty obvious. But we talk about the sermon from the weekend. It's just application questions. We don't do a whole lot of noses in the Bible, sort of Bible study. But occasionally we'll throw some stuff in. But it's, it's mostly from the content on the weekend, this message right here is what we'll be talking about all week in home groups. And we really hash through how to apply that word to our lives. And so at home groups this week, I asked the question, have you ever had a mountaintop moment? At first I realized I had to explain that a little bit, right? And so mountaintop moments to me are a moment of, of like I said in the video, extreme presence of God, right? Where your perception seems to shift, your perspective shifts because God spoke or he moved or he did something powerfully in your life, right? That's a mountaintop moment. We've talked a lot this year about the valleys with God, the walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the battles, the struggles, the things you got to overcome. But this is not that. This is the high moments with God, the mountaintop breakthrough, blessing moments. In Elijah's story we studied last week, 
We saw three different types of mountaintop moments just in his story alone. We saw breakthrough for an entire nation, mass repentance, right? And then we saw in the second one, God's supernatural provision, literally rain from heaven on a famine-ridden nation. Blessing from God, supernaturally provided. And in the third one, we saw Elijah brokenhearted, alone, running to the mountain of God. And in that mountaintop moment, God sent help in the form of people. So we see all these mountaintop moments in the Bible. And so my question was, have you ever had one? Have you ever had a mountaintop moment like that, a breakthrough moment with God? And as we began to go around the circle, we heard story after story after story of mountaintop moments. I mean, some of them were moments they didn't even know it was God in the moment, but everything changed and their relationship with him changed because of it. Amazing stories. At the end, we were like, man, I didn't know you guys went through all of that. It was an awesome moment for our group. But for me, Mountaintop experiences were almost always at camps, mission trips, conferences. Growing up, I grew up in this church, in fact, and so I had this environment a lot. It was pretty commonplace, and every day in my life, we were always sort of a a different, down-to-earth, real church, and so this happened a lot. But it was when I went away to a strange place, a different place, that I got breakthrough moments with God, special moments with God. But at about age 13 or 14, I remember having this sort of phase in my life where I had to question my own faith. Do I believe or is it just my parents' faith? Do I actually believe? What do I believe about God or is this just how I was raised? Right? And if you're a parent of a 13, 14-year-old, I believe this is an extremely important moment in your child's faith. It happens around that time, and they have to define it for themselves. They have to understand why they believe, not just what they believe anymore. As adults, as parents, we have to be careful to honestly answer those questions. They're not kids anymore, and they're not looking at it like kids anymore. They need to know the why behind it. And I believe kids at this age, they they need other adults in their lives saying the same thing as their parents, right? So why Jay High and kids ministry in the back are so important, so important that we have good people back there who are saying the same things as their parents. And kids this age also need peers saying the same things, believing the same things. Both are super important at this time. But I had both of those, right? I, I had other adults. I had good youth pastors, kids pastors in my life that were speaking into me. I had peers that believed the same thing that I did. I also had mountaintop moments. I had these incredible breakthroughs with God or or healing moments. I was a full-fledged Pentecostal Bible-thumping Christian as a kid. I mean, we even had a Holy Spirit club in the attic of our shed, (laughs) and we prayed over other kids in that attic, and we saw other kids getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. My brother was baptized in the Holy Spirit, no adult to be found, just an attic in a backyard. We were, we saw ourselves as the church, not just the church of tomorrow or the church of the future, but the church of today, and I still believe kids can be powerful like that. I think I brought more 
people and families to church as a kid than I ever have as an adult. I just, kids are unashamed, right? This is just life. And so I had all these moments to look back on, and I thought, there's no way that I can turn my back on this, not just because of the people in my life and the good people in my life, but because I've had an experience or two back there. Now, how can I turn away from him knowing what I know today? I can't. I've seen healings. I've felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, that love that's like nothing else, and you never want to leave it. They're real. If they're real, then I have to do something about it. And so mountaintop experiences help encourage us in our faith, even when we're not on the mountain. They continue to help us over and over and over. And this week, we're going to study another series of mountaintop experiences. Interestingly, it's the same mountain that we looked at last week. It's Mount Sinai, but a different disciple. And it's before the time of Elijah. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses leading the people of Israel. And as I began to study his mountaintop moments, I noticed a few things. The... Story of Moses spans a lot of the Bible. I mean, there's Genesis, and then the next four books are all about Moses' life and the people of Israel. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's, they're massive books. It's a lot to study. I probably spent 20 or 30 hours this week just diving into this because, honestly, it's, it's one of my favorite pieces of Scripture to study It's when God was first setting up his nation, his people, and building this covenant with us and and making life make sense in that context. And it's so interesting. There's so many good nuggets. But as I began to study Moses' mountaintop moments and really see this story through that lens, I noticed he had a lot more mountaintop moments than I thought he did. He was called up. I mean, in my mind, the last one we're going to go over today was the one I thought of for passionate, this particular uh, subject today. But he had about eight mountaintop moments just in the chapters we're going to study today. (laughs) Called up to the mountain over and over and over again. And these mountaintop moments, as we talked about last week, they do renew vibrancy. That, that single-minded, active, fun, bold, dynamic life worship of God that we saw with Elijah. It does renew that. But there's a few more things that it seems to do for Moses. So the first few times he went up the mountain, it was all about the covenant. They were building the covenant. God would explain it to him. Moses would go down and be the mouthpiece for God to the people. He would explain it to the people, and then he would take their answer back up. And so it was a couple times up and down with that. The next few times were about the laws being worked out, really honing in on what this means. Now that you've said yes to this covenant, here's what you have to do, because it's a two-way street, the covenant. God's promises to uphold you and keep you, to keep you as his people, come with some conditions. So the people emphatically said yes. We want to follow God. He's going to be our only God. We're going to be loyal to him and him alone We want the covenant. And so after about the fourth or fifth time Moses goes up and down, we see this very official ceremony happen. They ratify the covenant. It is a legal binding agreement between God and his people. And Moses goes back up and he says, yes, the people are in. We're good to go. 
Now, it was about the sixth time that Moses ascended the mountain. He brought Aaron and his sons, his, his brother and his sons, and he brought 70 elders of Israel with him. God had asked them to do that, and they got to eat with God. I mean, somewhere on this mountain, they sat down at a table, and God provided them food, and they ate with God. I mean, it, it describes this scene where they, they can see God resting on this dazzling blue pavement thing. And it's, it must have been this amazing mountaintop moment for those 70 elders and Aaron and his sons. Just a breakthrough, amazing, fun time with God. But after that, we see God pulling Moses even further up the mountain alone this time. He hangs out just around the edge of this humongous cloud that God is occupying on the top of this mountain. And for six days, he stays there. He receives the tablets, right, the, the Ten Commandments. He, God gives them to him, written by God. And then after those six days, on the seventh day, God pulls Moses even further. He says, enter the cloud, enter my actual physical presence. And so Moses steps in. And he spends 40 days and 40 nights in that cloud until all of Israel assumes he's dead. <laughs> I mean, they're looking up at this mountain. It looks like fire from the bottom, the Bible says, and that he entered a while ago. Good game, guys, right? But we had a good run. I mean, <laughs> I think he's gone now. We're going to have to make our own plan. And so at the bottom of this mountain, Israel goes back on the covenant that they made just 47 days ago. And they, do you remember this story? I preached on this before, that they set up a gold calf and they start praising it and praying to it because they no longer have Moses as a go-between. They're borrowing some things from Egypt. Egypt was all about their idols, and, and so they're borrowing some things from their past instead of moving forward with God into the future. Meanwhile, Moses is up on this mountain. He's receiving instructions from the Lord. He's not just hanging out up there doing nothing, right? God is a productive God. He was giving him instructions, lots of important instructions. They were working feverishly. They are planning on that mountaintop. Specific instructions about how to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the altar that God should be worshipped with and the priestly garments. And he even tells them who to use to build these things in some cases. Very specific people. God is a planner. Some of us, we come in church, we think God just goes by the seat of his pants. Like our services should just be so open and flowy and we should go with whatever. God can also be in the plans for a service, right? He is a planner. It's part of his nature. If you haven't noticed God's plans while reading the Bible, you haven't been paying attention. He's had a plan to save your soul from the dawn of creation. He is a planner. So Exodus 25 to 31 are all about these instructions, how to administrate this new nation, how to organize ministry, how to properly and fairly govern the people. Who to anoint, vision for the future. He's giving him the supernatural vision and a specific plan to get there. And so Moses, mountaintop moment, he comes out of it full I and mean, ready to go and immediately hopes shattered. <laughs> comes out of that amazing moment with God to disobedience of the people. And we see him come down to Moses and he's like, Aaron, what, are, what is going on? How could you? And Aaron's like, well, the people brought all their gold, and I put them in the fire, and out popped this calf. So I thought, 
it wasn't really like that at all. He spent all night and all day building the darn thing, but he's making some excuses, and Moses starts handing out punishments. He literally, he's, it's like he draw, draws a line in the sand, and he says, if you are on God's side, come over here. If you're not, stay where you are. And all of the Levites come over. Now, it's right at this point where we see Moses' passion. We are a vibrant, passionate, selfless church, right? And we have to go to the word for what it means to be a passionate disciple. Moses was a passionate disciple. We see this passion come over him at this point. But in this context, it looks a whole lot like anger. He's angry. How could you? 47 days ago, you promised to God. You entered into a legal agreement. We had a whole ceremony about it, guys. What is going on? You saw the Lord's presence on the top of this mountain. You walked through the Red Sea on dry land. You saw the plagues in Egypt. God has come through for you so many times. How could you? Moses had experienced God firsthand. Why would you want anything else? How could you want anything else after that? Passion often inspires passion in others. And so the Levites, they joined him. The whole tribe joined him. And it's actually really interesting at this point because we see them ordaining themselves for ministry with this one act. They quickly repent, say, yeah, we were wrong. And they obey sacrificially. If you read the story, they end up being part of the discipline that God doles out, and it's not easy. But they ordain themselves for ministry. They get a special position of ministering to the rest of the kingdom and having a closer relationship to God because they obeyed quickly. They repented quickly, and they obeyed sacrificially. With these two traits, you can actually ordain yourself for ministry. Without them, you disqualify yourself. Repent quickly. God's not asking you for perfection. Repent quickly when you make a mistake and obey sacrificially. And so he inspired this passion in others. Moses' passion inspired passion in others. And after the calf incident, we see Moses brokenhearted. So disappointed in his people, so angry. There's this jealous anger. It's probably the same anger Jesus felt when he was flipping tables in the temple, right? A jealous anger. You're turning this into something it's not. My father's house. You're worshiping yourselves. You've made it all about you in my father's house and just so brokenhearted for the people. It's probably the same anger we see described in that God is a jealous God. He wants your heart because he's given you so much. And how dare you attribute that to somebody else, something else. He's brokenhearted for his people. He's so angry. And where do you think he runs? Back to the mountain. Back to God. Back into his presence. And so we see him climb the mountain again. And there's this pattern that starts to emerge in Moses' story, I started to notice right about this time, and it's, he has these amazing moments on the mountaintop with God, experiencing his presence, sitting in it. It changes him. 
And it inspires this amazing passion within him. Passion that makes him want to be obedient and inspires passion in others. And out of that passion, we see another step of this. And that's the request for more of God's presence. Which leads, maybe you can guess where I'm going with this, back to the mountaintop. He's on the mountaintop. He gets inspired. He has passion for God. And he just can't live without it. In moments of brokenness and despair, disappointment, disillusionment, he goes back to the mountaintop. And so we see him back on the mountaintop, Exodus 32, 31. So Moses returned to the Lord. And he said, oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made themselves gods of gold. Yet now if you will only forgive their sin, and if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He's so passionate, he's willing to self-sacrifice. Who does that sound like? It's Christ-like obedience, Christ-like passion. Passion drove Christ to the cross. Passion for us. Passion for God and his mission for us. And so Moses is willing to lay down his life for his people. God isn't quite there yet, though. He still has hope for the people. He forgives them. He hands out some discipline to try to keep them on the right track. And we see Moses again serving God to the best of his ability. He builds this tent of meeting where God, he doesn't have to climb the mountain all the time, I guess, and God can come descend in the people, with the people. And we see him getting up, going to the temple, the tent of meeting, and all the people come out to their openings of their tent, and they watch him, and they worship the presence of God, and and Moses enters. And it's in this tent we see this next conversation between Moses and God, Exodus 33, verse 12. One day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. I I can feel the stress of leadership on Moses at this point, right? And, And I know because of how God responds, he's stressed. He's a little panicky. Maybe he hasn't had some rest in a while. The people are at him all the time. They're constantly disobeying. You've been telling me, take these people to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you will send with me. You've told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If that's true and you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. I mean, I can just picture him pacing while he's saying this. It's just coming out of his mouth. God, help, right? God, these people, I I need your help to govern them. Remember that we're your people. I mean, you can just feel his stress. And the Lord replies, it's almost like he's saying, chill. (laughs) Take a breath, Moses. I will personally go with you and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place passion. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people if you don't go with us? For our presence, your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. If you're not going, I'm not going, right? You can feel his desperate need and craving for God. The mountaintop moments that he's experiencing only cause him to want more. 
He needs more of God. If you're not going, I'm not going. I have had this feeling. I feel like it's a similar feeling. I haven't been preaching that long, right? It's not been that long. The very first time I preached on the stage, I remember sitting down here before worship, and I had prepared y'all like months ahead of time I was studying I was nervous I was constantly rehearsing it and I just uh, I had to be right you know and I grew up very shy never comfortable with being the center of attention being on stage it just it went against my nature and so I remember sitting down here during worship and just thinking God if you don't come up those steps with me I'm not going up them right I'm not doing this if you're not in this I can't it's not, I don't want it to be anything about me. This has to be your words. Holy Spirit, be in this. Holy Spirit, be in this. Holy Spirit, be in this. I was just desperate. And I got up and I preached it. Well, well, the next couple times were similar, right? God, go with me. God, I can't do this without you. God, you showed up last time. You got to show up again. Until it got comfortable. And I remember a little while into preaching on a regular basis, it was I wasn't nervous anymore. God had shown up for me so many times, and this is sort of part of the process of trusting him. What used to challenge you so much becomes commonplace. There's a problem with that, though, too, and that suddenly I'm getting up relying on me instead of him. And I remember one Saturday night I got up and I preached, and afterward I just thought, what happened? (laughs) I mean, I said all the right things. I I practiced that. I mean, I had my information correct, but something was wrong. Something was missing. And I went home and I prayed about it, and I felt like God just said, you didn't ask me to come with you. You were alone up there. That was you preaching. You want me to do the preaching, you got to allow me to work through you. Oh, kind of sat me down. The next morning, I was back to the desperation. I was in worship. God, come with me, right? I'm not doing this if you're not coming with me. I I know that desperation that Moses felt here. At one point in the Bible, it says that Moses was the humblest man on earth. I think he knew that he knew that he knew deep down none of this was about him. He couldn't lead an entire nation full of unruly, stubborn people. Those are not my words. Those are God's words about them. Couldn't lead them on his own. That he wasn't the one leading after all. He was just a mouthpiece for God. He knew his place very well. I said, God, come with me. And I see this childlike faith in Moses too, which is interesting because he's generally thought to be a friend of God. He walked hand in hand with him. He spoke to him like a friend, the Bible says. And it seems like the further you get into your relationship with God, the more you grow up and you're not a child anymore. And yet Jesus says to have childlike faith. And you can see that in Moses and his request here. The Lord replied to Moses in verse 17. He says, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. And Moses responds, then show me your glorious presence. And some versions say, please show me your glory. It's this childlike dependence on who God is. Now, I have two kids, they're five and eight years old, and sometimes at a restaurant or something, 
they'll need something. And I'll say, yeah, go, go ahead, just ask, right? Go get napkins or whatever. And they're like, uh, me, right? Like, uh, mom, I'm a kid. Uh, I, I don't know if I can do this. And because I was a shy kid, I sort of pushed them. Get out of the nest, right? You got to go build that boldness. Go ahead, go ask. And they get out of their seat and they're looking back at me. Right? Like, I, I, Mom, if you don't come with me, how will they know I'm authorized to ask for napkins? Right? I, I don't know if I can do this on my own. And, and I just see this in Moses. Right? If you don't come with me, how will they know? How will they know I'm authorized? How will they know? Because I'm not enough on my own. I'm not enough. I need you to come with me and show me your glorious presence. You just see this craving in him for more of God for his touch, for his presence. He just wants to hang out with him. God, come. And my five-year-old, lately, he took my face, he cupped my face in his hand, and he said, Mama, I haven't touched you much today. (laughs) I haven't touched you much today, Mama. And I, I thought back to this article I read once that said kids that age, they need physical touch from their parents, right? They need the, the hugs, the high fives, the ruffles on their head. It's, it's, it's a de- developmental need that they have. I'm starting to think we have the same need deep down within us for our Heavenly Father. We need his presence like we need oxygen in our lungs. We need his presence like we need water to feed our bodies. We need his presence and we should crave it like we crave coffee in the morning, right? Is that just me craving the coffee? No? We need it. We have to be craving it. Show me your glorious presence. And the funny thing is Moses had been on the mountaintop a few times. (laughs) He knew a thing or two about the word. He literally wrote the book on it. I mean, most scholars think Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The the Jews called it the Torah. They based everything they did on those books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's widely thought that Moses wrote all of those. I mean, you heard him talk about the book God was writing earlier. What me out of the book you're writing? He knew God was writing a book. He probably did it, except for the last few Verses of Deuteronomy, which talk about his death. They think Joshua finished it for him. He wrote the book on God. He knew God. Why was he saying, I need to understand your ways? He was the guy who understood the ways. The only guy on planet Earth at the time who fully understood the ways, and yet he didn't think he did. Because mountaintop moments inspire passion to ask for more mountaintop moments. He needed more. The goodness of God is so deep, so rich. There's so much of it that it goes on forever. We will never know all of the goodness of God on this side of eternity. But we always have to be wanting more. And and the more that we know of it, the more we want of it. Passion will always lead you back to asking for more of God. He couldn't begin to imagine a life without God. I've come to see that passion naturally leads to obedience as well. The more you experience of his goodness, the easier it becomes to obey. Passion almost equals obedience. Like Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, can anybody finish it? 
obey my commandments, right? If you love me, obey my commandments. If you have passion for God, obedience naturally follows. And if obedience doesn't follow, you might not love God like you think you do. The passion might not be there. A passion is a strong and barely controllable emotion. It spurs you on to do things. When you're passionate about something, you're all about it, right? When you're passionate about cars or motorcycles or essential oils, or you can't stop talking about it, right? We build our passion for these things. And it's not that they're bad inherently. There's nothing wrong with those passions that we have in life. But our passion for Jesus should outweigh all of those. We should be feeding our passion for him more than anything else, because that is what produces the fruit in our lives. I, in home groups, very often we go around the circle and we say, what do you need to work on right now? Like, what are you working on in your relationship with God? And I almost never ask that, write that, I write the home group questions. I almost never write that question anymore because nine times out of 10, everybody in the circle would just say patience. (laughs) Like every, like almost all of them would just, I just need to be more patient. I'm, you know, I'm a road rager. I snap at my kids, whatever. I just, I just need to be more patient. And it, it got under my skin for a while because I thought it's backwards. God's not asking us to just try harder and be better and be more patient on your own strength. That's religion. Jesus came to fulfill that, to replace it with something better. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit living within us produces those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all things we want to be, right? I want to be all those things, but I will never be all of those things all of the time in my own strength. So to pursue patience alone means I'm going to fail almost every time. But to pursue the Holy Spirit means he produces them within me. They come out of me naturally. You can't take a peach and plant a peach in the ground and up pops a peach. Right? That's not how it works. A a tree comes out of that. And you have to water that tree. And you have to prune that tree. And you have to plant it around other trees. Right? You have to take care of that thing. And then naturally it produces good fruit. Holy Spirit, your relationship with your creator is the tree that produces good fruit. If you're not filled up with the Holy Spirit, you're never going to be patient all of the time on your own. Most of us, we don't have an obedience problem. We have a passion problem. We're not feeding the passion for God. We're not pursuing him with everything that we have. And you can see it in our walk because... We're not living up to the obedience. We're trying too hard on our own without just pursuing the Holy Spirit. Moses asked for more to see his glory. And God's response in Exodus 33, the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I, sh- I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock, 
As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. There's a necessary ignorance to man, to humanity. We will not know everything about God on this side of eternity. And I think the disconnect comes... The twisted nature of our relationship with him comes when we not only try to get close to God, we try to know everything about him to the point where we try to be him. I want the wisdom of God so I can answer everything perfectly. And we start to get off a little bit in pursuing all of those good things, but not the one who created the good things. There's a peace of God we will not know on this side of eternity. That's what God was trying to teach Moses. you got to trust me a little bit. Trust that I know more than you, that I am more than you can handle in your physical body. Come up the mountain, hang out with me, spend time with me, but you can't have it all. You have to trust me. There's a, a faith element in this, right? You just have to step out sometimes. But he gave them a new knowledge of his goodness, of his kindness. He gave him a fresh revelation of his name, Yahweh. Forty days and forty nights Moses spends there in the presence of God. He gets so much extra God that his physical presence changes. His face literally shone. It was vibrant. It was shining because he had spent so much time in the presence of God. You know, Moses didn't die until he was 120. And when he was 120, God led him up another mountain, and they had a last mountaintop moment together. I wonder if he was able to retain a young man's strength at 120 years old because his physical presence had so changed on that mountain. When he came off that mountain, his face was radiant, and he was more passionate than ever. Yesterday morning, I had all of this written, but I just kept reading. I couldn't help myself. And the rest of the story of the Israelites is crazy. <laughs> I mean, they go through some stuff. They are constantly rebellious, constantly. They're constantly trying to overthrow Moses, or they, they have this victim mentality that's still hanging on from slavery. I, I, I can't imagine the passion that Moses must have had to have had to endure, to get through that. I think Moses had to have those moments in order to get through it. So mountaintop moments create passion. Passionate disciples obediently pursue more of God. Passion creates a request for more, which creates more mountaintop moments. Throughout this series, we've been defining vibrant, passionate, and selfless. These terms that we throw out all the time, it's our identity as a church, but we often don't quite know what that means in this context. We get sort of what vibrant means, but what does it mean in this context, right? And last week, we defined that. And what does passionate mean in this context? Vibrant is sort of the outward appearance of our faith. It's, it's shining, it's bright, it's attractive, it, it pulls people toward us, it's fun, it's bold, it's dynamic, but it takes over everything. It's life worship of God. Passion goes deeper. It's obediently pursuing more of God. 
Passion is obedience. But the funny thing is, obedience also leads to passion. As we were sitting around in home group this week as well, we, we somehow got on the subject of tithing and fasting and sort of some of these spiritual disciplines that we see throughout the Bible. And it was funny how there were people in the group that hadn't taken that step of faith to tithe. Just they're a little fearful, holding on to a little, they just couldn't get themselves to step out and trust God. And it was funny how the, the other ones in the group who were like, I've been tithing for two years. I've been tithing for 20 years, whatever. They were so passionate about it. We don't talk about this enough in the church, maybe because finances are just awkward or whatever. But once you take that step into obedience, you don't want to go back. There's no reason to. God's taking such good care of you. Life is beautiful and easy and fun. Not that it's not without struggles, but it's so different from life before. And don't take my word for it, right? I heard four or five people around this circle in my living room say the same thing. They were passionate about tithing, passionate about it. Because when you're obedient, you experience God's goodness. His goodness never ends. Why would you ever want to go back? Why? Once you experience fasting, real fasting, where you get breakthrough mountaintop moments with God, why would you ever want to not practice it? It's amazing, and it's a breakthrough moment. Obedience produces passion, just as much as passion produces obedience. And passion allows God to unlock some blessings for you like never before, to allow you to enter into his goodness. He wants to shower blessings on you. You know, it struck me while I was studying this how Moses's story arc is so built around mountaintops. I mean, he's called at the base of Mount Sinai. He's called into ministry. The burning bush scenario happened on that mountain, and God literally references it. He says, you will, there, there's a proof that I am with you because someday you're going to worship me again on this mountain. And then we see Moses' eight or nine mountaintop experiences there at the beginning of his ministry with the Israelites. And then the very end of his life, God was still answering his prayer to show him his glory by taking him up the mountain. And although he couldn't enter the promised land because of his disobedience, he could see it. God showed him his glory even right before death still answering this prayer. But the biggest revelation came when I I started to think about the Mount of Transfiguration story in the New Testament. We're going to study the last week of this series. And I started to think about that mountaintop moment and, and Jesus up on that mountain and what he had endured and gone through and how many mountaintop moments Jesus had. And, and he was at the top of this mountain about to be taken up into heaven. And do you remember who was there with him? Elijah and Moses. Even after death, God was still answering his prayer on a mountaintop. God loves us so much. When we have passion for him, he has passion for us too. He wants to pour blessings on us and he wants to answer our prayers with more of him. Even after death, Moses got to see the glory of God got to be there 
when Jesus' mission and calling was complete and he was called back up into heaven. Moses climbed that mountain over and over and over again out of passion and obedience. The mountain renews passion and obedience. It's a beautiful cycle. Passion requires cultivating. It requires some obedience. It takes work. I actually think most Christians, when we pray for revival, we're just asking God to like magically produce the passion without any work on our part. God, bring revival, but I don't want to do anything for it. God, I want to see other people worship you, but I'm just going to go home and take a nap. Right? We, we don't want to do anything to work for it. But revival starts with us in our own hearts when we climb the mountain. We put some work into it. We discipline ourselves. I imagine halfway up that mountain, you're thinking this burns on the legs a little bit. Right? This is work. God, if I could just go downhill for a while, I need a break. That'd be nice. But it takes work to climb that mountain. Sometimes it takes people surrounding you help you climb the mountain and not give up. Today, unlike Moses, we have the opportunity to renew our passion everywhere we go. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit available to us. I got to encounter the Holy Spirit and have fresh revelations of God in my Bible study this week in my living room. I didn't have to climb a mountain. I just had to put the work in to pursue his presence. I'm not telling you all to actually become mountain climbers and climb physical mountains. I'm saying put the work in. Open the dusty Bible on your shelf. Understand who he is. Meditate on his word. Think about it. Ask questions of it. Interact with it. God is in it. It's his words and he's there. We all have the opportunity as well this week to share our passion with others to help it inspire others and to be inspired by others. At the end of service today, we have a home group fair going on, which is in these tables along the back with the balloons. And we're going to have home group leaders that are going to be there waiting for you to come say, I want to be a part of your group. They want to talk to you about it. They want to help you find the right one for you. And then they want to show up every week and talk about the sermon, encourage each other, Make friendships with each other. People that can gather around you and encourage you in your faith. Help you climb that mountain every single week. It takes work. Our relationship with God was always meant to be simple, but never easy. Simple to understand. God sent Jesus to make it so simple. All you have to do is say, God, I believe in you. I believe you sent your son to die on the cross for me. I accept his forgiveness, and I want to live your way from today forward. That's it. It's simple, but to live it out, you have to climb the mountain. Pursue his presence. Understand him and put the work in to do that. I want to pray for you today. Father, make us passionate disciples and followers of you. Help us to listen to your voice more closely than ever before. Make it our hearts cry that we won't make a move without you. That you'll show us your glory. 
your presence, your passion. That we would be passionate about what you're passionate about. God, help us be more obedient. Help us to enter into new goodness, new blessings from you. Because we so trust you. How could we ever go back? Help us be constantly climbing that mountain. Never looking back, longing for the past or lusting for things we don't have, but trusting that you have everything that we need. But in you is the power, the glory, the kingdom forever. We trust you with our lives, with our will, with our desires, with our needs. We trust you to fulfill them. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. Passion is about pursuit. It can't be left alone, and it, it can't just be left here. We need to go after it. Right now, the home group leaders have, have gotten to their tables and are, are ready to meet with you. Consider joining a home group. But I want to tell you that being in a home group isn't going to solve the problems or, or, or give you all the answers. What it is is it's a, it's a tool. It's a, it's a group. It's, it's like having somebody who, who climbs with you up the mountain who gives you advice, who, who makes sure you're safe. It's like when you're mountain climbing and they hold the rope, it, it's a tool. And it'll only work if you pursue God in it. So if you're ready to take a next step of faith and, and do something, to start climbing that mountain and become more passionate about God and have more moments like that, join a home group. Talk to one of them. Get to know the groups. Don't just swing by one. Ask them and find the right group for you so that you can take your next step in faith and take it seriously. Would you stand before we go so we can pray and thank God for this time of worship, this ability to be together and pursue him passionately this week. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time of study. I thank you for this time of worship. I ask that you would keep us safe until we're together again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>